Morning, everyone. Much better. Well, hey, um, sounds like some of you are glad to be here. I'm glad to be here, too. Actually, I'm glad to be back in the States. My family and I um, just got back in the States a couple weeks ago. Um, We actually got to take the trip of a lifetime through Europe earlier this summer. Uh, We have some relatives who live in Italy, sister and brother-in-law, and uh, so they hosted us. So we got to tour through Italy and Austria and And one of the highlights for my husband, John, and I was um, uh, they sent us to Paris for the weekend. Kind of, yeah, you can can say it, (laughs) Oh, Kind of a 20th anniversary celebration in the 23rd year of our marriage. So you know how that works. Uh, But we were were really looking forward to it, and we had an amazing time in Paris, um, except for our entrance into Paris. Um, The day that we went, we were anticipating this amazing romantic night, first night in Paris, right? And we encountered everything but. We got to Paris on the day that they had the big Uber taxi strikes. So we get off the plane and there is no shuttle bus or taxi or limousine or anything to be found at the airport. Uh, In fact, the strike was so bad that there were overturned cars. The the taxi drivers were overturning any taxi that got near the airport, and they were setting some of them on fire, and there were riots. And it was such a great entrance into Paris. And we were told that um, our only way to our hotel was on foot or by metro. We we chose metro. Um, So uh, here's here's what happened. We found a sweet little English, semi-English speaking gal at the airport who helped us kind of find our way. She drew out on a map for us um, which trains we would take through the metro, and we started off. And here's what the metro was like. First off, it was packed. There were no taxis or shuttles, right? So everybody was on the metro. And it was hot. It was kind of like a sauna. About 100 degrees, 90% humility, or humility. There's a sermon for you, humility in the, in the, in the metro. 90% humidity, and uh, uh, there was this kind of green cloud of body odor that hung throughout the, uh, the uh, car, and so it all kind of combined to create this steamy, intimate, aromatic environment that we got to share body to body with complete strangers who spoke no English. It wasn't exactly the first night in Paris that I had imagined. <laughs> but it was an adventure, and, and the, the metro kicked us out into Paris, and we began the 10-block walk to our hotel. And uh, we quickly discovered that Paris is laid out in curly cues. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things that we discovered on our, um, during our weekend was that Napoleon was so disgusted with the layout of Paris that uh, quite a few years ago, he actually leveled 60% of the city in order to build it back up in a more orderly fashion. We have no idea what orderly fashion he had in mind, but we didn't get it. And so we wandered, and we would ask well-meaning French people for directions, and they would reply in French, and so we'd wander some more. And about five hours after we had landed in Paris, we finally came to our destination, the address um, that the sweet gal at the airport had sent us to, and she sent us to the airport shuttle services office, not our hotel. So by now, that office was closed, and uh, it was not our happiest vacay moment. Uh, We discovered that we were actually up here in Paris when we were supposed to be down here in Luxembourg. And uh, so we sat down to take stock. It was dark. We were hungry. We hadn't eaten. The the hotel wasn't answering our calls, which was great because our, our emergency phone went dead right after that. There were no taxis or shuttles in our vicinity, no hotels that we could see. We were eight miles from the hotel that we 
thought we had a reservation at, but we were beginning to wonder if we'd gotten scammed. We were in a city where we didn't speak the language, we didn't know the culture, and we didn't know the level of safety for tourists wandering around carrying their luggage in the middle of the night. So, all of a sudden, our situation became more than just a convenience, and we felt threatened. We weren't at crisis level yet, but we definitely could see the potential for one. So, this morning, we're going to talk through a few stories, and I want to know when the last time you felt threatened was. Think about that. Maybe it was something that threatened your safety or your health or even threatened a relationship that you were in. Maybe um, it was just a travel challenge like John and I experienced, or maybe it was something a bit more crucial. Maybe the, the threat that came knocking at your door had something to do with your health, right? You, you, you think you might be sick, and so you Google a bunch of your symptoms, and all of a sudden you read this awful list of potential diseases and diagnoses, and then you freak yourself out even more when you go for your second opinion at Yahoo and read the same exact list. I know, you guys have all used Google as your personal physician, right? How do you respond when you feel threatened? Well, if you're human, which I'm hoping most of us in this room are, you either fight or you run. You all know what that's called, right? Fight or flight syndrome. Yeah, it's actually a response that's triggered by a flood of adrenal hormones into our system, and it's, and it's a pretty natural response to a perceived threat. And while this mechanism can get us out of the pool quickly when lightning is flashing, those stress hormones can actually shut down our ability to think rationally and make wise choices. We focus on the short-term situation rather than, um, and we lose sight of the long-term consequences of our reactions. So I'll tell you what, when we were in Paris and I realized that our situation was potentially scary, I didn't run, my feet hurt too dang bad, but I definitely wanted to pick a fight. And guess who was the only English-speaking guy around for me to pick a fight with? Thankfully, I'm married to an amazing man, a very wise man, and we didn't fight. We prayed. And two hours later, we walked into our hotel, crisis averted. I want to suggest this morning that there's a better way to respond when we feel threatened, a way to react that engages God and releases his power and wisdom into our situation. So we're going to take a look at the threat response of one of my favorite kings in the Bible, King Hezekiah. Because when King Hezekiah's back was against the wall, he didn't run or fight. He simply trusted God. In fact, the Bible tells us that Hezekiah trusted in the Lord so much that there was none like him in all the kings of Judah, either before or after him. We're going to explore what trust looks like on the front end of a threat, in the middle of the threat, and then at the end. And, and my hope is that we'll come away with some new tools, some lessons that we can apply the next time we face a potential crisis. So here's the situation. Um, well, first off, King Hezekiah's story is actually told in three places in the Bible, in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Isaiah. So you can take your pick when you go home and read. But we're going to go through it in the book of 2 Kings, starting in uh, chapter 19, if you want to open up your handy-dandy Bible apps. But let me give you um, just a little bit of background real quick. Um, the story, or for most of his life, Hezekiah has been watching his country at war, Okay. His family lived in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem uh, was the capital city of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel, and then there were a bunch of northern tribes. And uh, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, had been king for quite a while. So during Hezekiah's lifetime, he had slowly seen all of the northern tribes of Israel conquered. 
by surrounding countries, right? And then, and then he'd slowly seen some of the communities around his own city conquered until all that was left was Jerusalem, his city. And we enter the story after he's been king for about 14 years. And he's been watching all the action in the north, and he's been watching the action around his city, and he doesn't need CNN to tell him that trouble's on its way. And trouble's name is Sennacherib. Comes knocking on the door. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria, and he really wanted the land that Jerusalem sat on to expand his own empire. So he sends his army right up to the gates of Jerusalem, and he sends out this written um, threat to Hezekiah, but then he also verbally shouts it. And he tells Hezekiah that he's an idiot for putting his faith in God, and he's a soon-to-be-dead idiot, along with all of his followers. And he tries to instill fear in Hezekiah and his people. In 2 Kings 18, we can read what Sennacherib says to the people. He says, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So Sennacherib had just a little itty-bitty ego, right? And he shouts all of this. And the Israelites, many of them are sitting on top of the walls surrounding Jerusalem, and they not only hear the threat, they see the threat. There's hundreds of thousands of enemy soldiers sitting out there with their, their tanks and their Uzis and their howitzers and their grenade launchers, right? And they're just a little bit nervous. I wonder if Hezekiah wasn't nervous also. Hezekiah hears the report. He gets it in writing, and he knows he has a choice. He can either show off his best girly scream and run, or he can muster an army and fight. But he does neither. 2 Kings 19, 14 tells us what he does. Hezekiah received the letter, the one from Sennacherib, from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. He prayed. God already knew what was going on, but Hezekiah spread this whole threat, the whole letter before the Lord, and he prayed. And God gave him favor. 2 Kings 19.35 tells us how the rest of the story plays out. It's pretty amazing. It says, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And he was worshiping in the house of Misrach, his god. Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword. Poor Sennacherib. No, I don't feel that way. But 185,000 enemy soldiers struck down, that's deliverance, right? And crisis averted for the Israelites. So we don't live in biblical times, and we live in America. There aren't armies marching up to our door, right? So a threat of this magnitude for us would probably be something that, that maybe threatened our health. Imagine that for the past few years, you've seen loved ones attacked by cancer, and you've seen cancer conquer some of those loved ones. But one day it comes knocking on your door as you discover that irregular mole or that lump, and it calls out to you. I am cancer. You can't beat me. There is no God that will save you. 
I conquered your grandfather, I conquered your sister, I conquered your neighbor, and I will conquer you. What do we do when we feel threatened and trouble comes knocking at the door? We trust God. We trust God just as Hezekiah did. But trust is a choice, and sometimes it's so much easier to say than it is to let it play out in our lives. So I want to take a look at some of the factors that enabled Hezekiah to trust God, even in the face of this annihilation, to choose trust over fear. So in order to do that, we're going to back up just a little bit in the book of 2 Kings. We're going to get a little more background on Hezekiah. So 2 Kings 18.2 tells us about him. It says he, Hezekiah, was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherah. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. I love that he was just 25 when he became king. I kind of picture him like one of our 20-something uh, staff leaders here, right? Top-notch net, skinny jeans, maybe a scarf, loves everything loud. <laughs> right? iPhone right here. So Hezekiah was this, was this plugged-in 20-something king, right, who trusted in God. But that kind of faith, it doesn't materialize out of the blue. And the thing about Hezekiah is it wasn't an example that was set for him. Because Ahaz, Hezekiah's dad, was a real piece of work. He was king of Judah before Hezekiah, but according to 2 Chronicles 28, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set up idols and Asherah poles. He worshipped the god of Baal. He ran shady business deals with enemy armies. He actually murdered Hezekiah's brothers by offering them up in the fires to some unnamed pagan god. Imagine that you are Hezekiah, growing up watching dad destroy everything good and deny God at every turn. Wait, some of this, us in this room don't have to imagine too far, do we? We've lived it. A family where unbelief, abuse, or alcoholism reigned and wreaked havoc. Maybe you too watched a sibling mistreated by an abusive or alcoholic parent. Maybe your parents' unbelief limited your own faith choices. That wasn't your fault. And you don't have to follow the same pagan gods of abuse, of alcoholism, of fear, or unbelief. You can make the same choice that Hezekiah did. Because Hezekiah chose to follow God, not his family. He didn't allow his past experiences to determine his present relationship with God. And I know for some of you who are parents in this room, you're going, wait, hold on, I, I want my kids to follow my example. Yeah, I'm raising two boys, right, in a Christian home, and I want them to follow God. I'm trying to set the example my husband and I have of following Jesus Christ just like all of you are in the, in the room and, and just like the Bible asks us to do as parents. But at some point, my boy's faith needs to become their own. At some point, they have to stop hanging on John and my beliefs and they have to discover what it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ themselves. What is it for them, or what does it look like for them to follow God, for them to trust God? And the cool part about it is, is we parents in the room get to help our kids do that. 
Hezekiah didn't have that. But he laid a foundation of trust in God anyway by developing his own relationship with God rather than following his family's faithless example. That's not the only way we see his trust played out, though. See, Hezekiah also took the lead in destroying the strongholds his father had set up. In the verses I read just a minute ago, it talked about Hezekiah tearing down the Asherah poles and, and, and tearing down the high places in, in Jerusalem. These were things that his dad had set up for um, the Israelite people to worship false gods, to worship um, idols. And um, Hezekiah tore them down. He tore down those pagan idols because he knew that they stood between his people and God. See, Hezekiah demolished his strongholds. This is much like the work we do in Rooted when we address our strongholds. Mike talked a little bit about this last week, that strongholds are those areas that keep us trapped in habits or behaviors that hold us back from God. Areas like anger or, or shame from an eating disorder, an abortion, or porn use. You may think that those areas have little to do with our with how we weather a potential crisis. But on the contrary, those things that hold us back from worshiping God actually separate us from his power to overcome the enemy. Demolishing strongholds in prayer frees us to worship God, to walk in his grace, and to find victory over crisis. So Hezekiah trusted in God. And we've seen it play out because he developed a personal relationship with God He broke those family patterns of dysfunction and unbelief. He worshiped God alone, and he led his people to do the same, and he demolished his strongholds. But what happens when all of a sudden the threat of annihilation is right there, knocking at his door? How does he respond? Well, if you remember back in the story, Hezekiah prays a very specific prayer. 2 Kings 19.15 tells us what he prayed. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. He was acknowledging all of those false idols there. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. I want to tell you that Hezekiah entering the temple to pray in the first place was a really unusual occurrence. Because in that day, for the the king, um, when he had a question or a concern that he wanted um, God's take on, he called in the prophet. And the prophet would then intercede in prayer for him. But this time was different. Hezekiah didn't rely on the religious officials. Just call the pastor and he will pray. He didn't second guess his ability to pray out loud or to choose all the right words. He took it upon himself. He took the initiative to pray. And take a look at Hezekiah's prayer. He acknowledged the greatness of God. He acknowledged the threat coming against him and his people, and he asked for deliverance for his people. But I want to hone in on that part for a minute. Why did he ask for deliverance? Why did he ask for deliverance? So the pain would end? So he wouldn't have to go through something hard? So life would get easier and more comfortable? No. Hezekiah asked and prayed for deliverance so that God may be glorified. 
See, Hezekiah was less concerned with directing the outcome of his prayer and much more concerned with making sure that his people knew God's power to do the miraculous. He wanted God to get all the credit. How often do we approach God as if he were a genie in the bottle, right? We lay out our our requests without reverence of God's greatness, with a heart motive that's attached more to our comfort level than it is to our devotion towards God. A prayer of surrender and trust glorifies God. A prayer for deliverance from my own comfort glorifies my fear and the author of fear, Satan himself. Isaiah 8, 13 says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Hezekiah trusted God, and it showed in the ways he followed God and the manner in which he prayed And God moved in a giant way when the enemy came knocking at his door, threatening everything he held dear. A few minutes ago, I asked you when the last time you felt threatened was. I want to change that question a little bit and ask you, what is the greatest thing threatening you this morning? What is the situation, person, or lie that is coming against your full-on surrender to God? Because that's what every potential crisis seeks to do right? Separate us from the peace and the power of God by instilling fear. Fear of pain, fear of loss, fear of death. Fear separates us from God. And I believe that God is asking you if you will trust him with that situation this morning. Because trust engages God. It opens our spirit in a way that God can bring peace in to replace the fear. It opens our circumstances up to his power Think about your threats. What if they're giant? <coughs> what, if, what if the threat coming against you is cancer or divorce or bankruptcy? Can God deliver you from those? Is he going to deliver you from those? I don't know. But I do know that Hezekiah's story gives us the hope to say that God can. God can annihilate 185,000 enemy soldiers bent on destroying his people. God can eradicate 185,000 porn pictures bent on destroying a marriage. God can completely eradicate 185,000 cancer cells bent on destroying a human life. And he can flip that around and he can take away $185,000 from a bank account in order to get our attention. God can. He can we got to remember that. See, as great as Hezekiah's deliverance was, the defeat of a, of a huge army, God didn't stop there. He had more in mind. He gave Hezekiah's people a promise for the future of those who would trust in him. And we say it, see it laid out in the book of Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah tells the same story as 2 Kings. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 37:30, And it said, This shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Love that promise. But what does it mean? See, the Israelites had been delivered from the death threat of the Assyrian army 
But remember, we're talking about multiple thousands, hundreds of thousands of enemy soldiers camped around their city in all their farmland. And so that vast army had depleted all their resources. And so once the army threat was gone and they had retreated, the people of Israel had to exist on what they could find to eat for two years. They existed that way. And in his promise, God was saying to his people, this isn't an overnight journey. You're going to have to trust me here. Keep your eyes out for my provision. And you know, this story and that promise is um, a promise that was given to the Israelites in a specific situation, but I believe it depicts God's heart for us as well, that we can trust God even when we don't see him working. When the initial health threat is over, but the medical bills are mounting, when the fight with your spouse concludes, but communication lines are still being restored, when the threat is over and we don't see God working, he asks us to look for his provision and trust on, to trust him. The end part of that verse says, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. What is the deal with the roots and the fruit, right? What do those have to do with trusting God? Well, these are God's goal for his followers. Strong spiritual roots and fruit that draws others to him. And roots and fruit are grown as we trust God, even when it feels risky to do so. I want to close this morning with one last story about a Muslim, former Muslim. My husband and I um, were in a life group, and our life group is getting ready to adopt uh, a refugee family. Um, They're coming in from Kenya. They've been in the uh, refugee camp for seven years. And... um, We've done this once before with an Iraqi family, and uh, one of the things that God laid on John and my heart was to become a little more familiar with the Islamic faith in order to uh, minister to the refugees coming in. And so we began reading through a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by a guy named Nabil Qureshi. And and Nabil was a former Muslim, and uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you how the book ends. He accepts Christ, right? It's in the title. Um, So (laughs) he accepts the Lord, But one of the things that struck me was what Muslims go through, the risk that they take to trust God for the first time, the one true living God. See, for a Muslim to choose Jesus Christ as his savior, he leaves everything behind. His family completely disowns them, completely turns their back on them. You hear of the mercy killings. For a Muslim to accept Christ, Islam is an honor and shame-based faith. And so oftentimes the family is so shamed that their family member would choose Christianity that they have to kill them. So Nabil is facing all of this, right? And there's this point in the book where, where Nabil comes before the Lord and he's facing the loss of everything dear to him. And he cries out to the Lord and he says, why, God, why? And God says, very clearly speaks to his heart. He says, because it's not about you. That struck me. Because in all that struggle, God was driving Nabil's spiritual roots deep, giving him a strength that he didn't know he ever had. But God revealed to him that, yes, he loves him and he wants him to have strong roots, but he has a greater goal. He wants Nabil's, he wants our faith to stand apart, to draw other people to God the Father. 
That inspired me. I want to live life like that. I want my faith to be so apparent to everybody around me, especially when life is hard, especially when the threats are right in front of my face. I want to live like that so people say, I want that. I want that. Do you want to live like that? Where your faith is so apparent that it stands apart from the norm. That's what trusting God in the face of great threat does. Hezekiah trusted God, and he was delivered from a great threat. Nabil trusted God and grew deep spiritual roots and fruit that drew others to God, grew God's kingdom. What could God do if you chose to trust him with your situation today? Let's ponder that as we pray. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you love us so deeply. You know what we're facing this morning. You know the people lie or situation that, that threatens us, the thing that's standing right in front of our face, and I believe you would speak to each one of us trust. Don't hold up. Don't put up your fists. Just trust me. I have work to do here. So Lord, would you move our hearts forward? I thank you for examples like Hezekiah. I thank you that we can trust his story. I thank you that you can, and in many cases you do, deliver us from great armies, great afflictions, things that threaten our faith, things that threaten our lives. We thank you that you have that power, Lord. And I pray your power into and through each one of us here, and I pray even more your peace into and through each one of us here. Would you help us trust? Maybe it's even for the first time. Trust you beyond what's right in front of our face, beyond what we can see or know. Grow our, our spiritual roots deep. Help us realize what our next step is to, to produce fruit for you, for your kingdom, to draw other people to your heart. And we will give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.